Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 37. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and if you notice a difference in audio quality, it's because I'm recording this in Paris. That's the one in France, not the one in Ontario or Texas. It's also a very wet Paris. I've been soaked twice already and my phone got so wet that it wouldn't restart. There are clothes hanging everywhere and the forecast for the next couple of days is just as wet. I'm here for the Hello Tomorrow Global Summit and I arrived the day of the huge general strike and it's still ongoing so that's been a challenge too. Anyway, let me tell you about this week's podcast, which is much more interesting than talking about strikes and rain. This week, our guests are Marit Ingjerdingen from the Institute of Clinical Medicine in Norway, Kyle Forsier, Senior Director of Life Sciences Product Marketing at Model N, and Dr. Andreas Rotze, Head of R&D for Vaccines at Biomedical Research and Bioproducts. And so it's now time for the news you may have missed over at lebiotech.eu. First, we had a special newsletter on International Women's Day with lots of articles, so those are definitely worth checking out. We had a story on antimicrobial resistance. Flagship Pioneering unveiled a new company, which is called Ampersand Biomedicines. And we had our February roundup of biotech investments. There was also an article on the 10 universities around the world to study biotech that you should know about. We had an article on whether pharma should be listening to social media to drive drug development. A new bone cancer drug could save children's lives. And we had a look at how changing mRNA might provide a new target for Alzheimer's disease. Affibody and Chiesi Group are collaborating to develop treatments for respiratory diseases. Researchers are working on trying to make a drug appear like food for brain tumors. And you can read all of these and many more at lebiotech.eu. And so to the first of our interviews this week. The first vaccine to potentially prevent staphylococcal-induced toxic shock syndrome, or TSS, has successfully completed a phase two study. That study was done by Biomedical Research and Bioproducts, and to tell us about it and the company is Dr. Andreas Rotzer, Head of R&D for Vaccines at Biomedical Research and Bioproducts. I wonder if First, you can tell me a little bit about um, TSS and MRSA and why they're such a big issue. Um, um, TSS means toxic shock syndrome. Um, and this is a serious and sometimes um, life-threatening condition. It is caused by bacterial um, pathogens, which secrete specific toxins. And these toxins then induce and turn the toxic shock. Um, besides streptococci, um, Staphylococcus aureus is the main causative agent. And Staphylococcal TSS can then be divided into two groups. It is associated with tampon use in women. So this is the menstrual toxic shock syndrome, the MTSS. But it is also associated with wound infections or afterburns, which is then called NM, so non-menstrual toxic shock syndrome. I mean, this condition in general is characterized by high fever, low blood pressure, but fast heartbeat. And it can lead ultimately to um, an organ dysfunction. 
And the main medication for this is simply antibiotics. So here we have then a problem with resistant staphylococci, the so-called MRSA. Why is it so challenging treating this? Um, so in the case of MRSA, of course, infections are hard to treat because you have to use more antibiotics. And the treatment um, are more expensive, of course. So, But in general, for staphylococcus aureus, this bug is, is a commensal, which means you have find both sensitive and resistant strains, um, frequently on skin and mucosa. And so that's why they are so often isolated upon wound infection, burns, or sepsis. And most of all, they have a, a broad arsenal of virulence factors, um, including surface proteins, toxins, cytolysins, et cetera, et cetera. And many of them are not fully characterized yet. So the attempts to develop a vaccine, they were not successful until now. Because for, for an effective decrease of the bacterial load upon infection, it is essential to develop a multi-component vaccine. And this is um, really difficult. Is there a lot of attention being paid to TSS and MRSA? Let's say all the big companies are behind it. All the big companies have their staphylococci program, to say. They have different tactics or different development ideas. Some of them already fail in clinical phases. Others try to add other factors, but none has already completed a phase three or something. So I guess we can move into your company now. Can you tell me about the company and the partnership with MediUni Vienna? So um, this company, BioBio, started about 25 years ago to do um, own financed research on staphylococcal variance factors. It was founded by the clinical immunologist, Dr. Marta Eibel. And this company has its own filling unit. So which means we had established not only um, a vaccine platform to identify toxins and to develop detoxified components, we were also able um, to produce this IMP ready for the clinical phases completely on our own. So in turn, the medical university is just around the corner in close proximity to our company building. And the bio bio founder, Professor Eiber, had a professorship at the medical university. So both sides know each other since a long time. Several preclinical um, um, studies were done at their facilities and all clinical studies so far were also done there. Could you tell me a bit about the study that you're currently working on and, and the vaccine and how that works? Yeah, yeah. so, uh, so the, the vaccine candidate itself is a detoxified version of TSST1, the so-called toxic shock syndrome toxin. And this toxin is actually re- responsible for 75% of all TSS cases. So the vaccinated should ideally develop neutralizing antibodies that then can inhibit the initiation of the toxic shock syndrome. However, it's important to mention here, a single component vaccine is not suitable to fight the staphylococcal infection. The purpose of this vaccine is to inhibit a life-threatening condition. So the neutralization of an important virulence factor should stop the symptoms, and this should then could lead then to diminish the need to give antibiotics. So that's the, the, the idea. And, and concerning the, the study, the staphylococcal vaccine successfully passed passed um, a phase two clinical study. The primary objective was safety. Secondary object- objective was immunogenicity and persistence. 
And what I can say so far, the safety was good. And the results of the immunological endpoints exceeded our expectations. Who benefits from the vaccine? Is it preventative or? Yeah, so the addressable market is huge. Um, as I said before, it's, it's a global women's health issue. So it can, it can affect all women with menstrual cycles, first of all. And second, of course, burn patients, patients with wound infections, patients with chronic wound, inf- wound infections are at risk. And of course, especially um, these vulnerable groups, such as those with compromised immunity, would benefit immediately from this vaccine. And would it be something like a tetanus vaccine that's sort of given to everybody to prevent infection? We think that tetanus is a a good example. And both have similar prevalence. And I would would say, especially I would say as young women, people who are at risk to their work and patients undergoing surgeries should most definitely be included. For women, is this something that, like with a tetanus shot, you would tetanus, you have to get it every 10 years? Is, would it be the same kind of thing that you would have to keep having a booster? Or So from our data so far, it shows that the majority of subjects in the study showed a zero conversion already after the first round of immunization and the persistence of binding as both, of binding and neutralizing antibodies was excellent. So we expect vaccination, so two vaccinations would be sufficient for a lifetime. And and if you're not in a vulnerable group that you already mentioned, but you were going into hospital to have an operation, is this something that would be beneficial? You have to keep in mind that Staphylococcus aureus is the most common cause of surgical side infections. So patients with an elective surgery should should simply have the option to protect themselves. So yes. What's the timeline on this in terms of when we could start seeing this being in general use? So we are planning right now the design of phase three, and we are also in contact with the local and international authorities for a certificate wise. However, we are also looking for a partner to conduct this phase three. So if we are lucky, we are confident to find someone, then we think we can achieve a market rollout within three years. And I guess the other question that arises out of that when it comes to this being in mass production is, can it easily be produced at scale? And what about the cost implications? Yeah, well, I mean, scaling up shouldn't be a problem. It is always vital to keep to keep costs as low as possible. Moreover, once this vaccine is on the market, um, it should be affordable for all people in need. So we are confident to have a, a decent price which can afford everyone. There is also a question about how many people are at risk. We say everybody is at risk because there is a certain possibility that you get an infection by Staphylococcus aureus. However, the prevalence is not as high as other viral infections maybe. So the idea is to have a preventive vaccine that everyone who feels unsure about surgery or unsure about being hospitalized because you are afraid to get get infected by RMRSA, you have an additional possibility to protect yourself. So that's why we are confident that this is a vaccine which will be bought by people. This is the first step, and ideally we would reach the end of a vaccine against the infection with a multiple component vaccine, so maybe in several years. However, this is a uh, single component vaccine with which we want to enter the market now or in a few years. And then based on this vaccine, we try to develop further a multi-component vaccine, maybe to cover more symptoms or at the end to 
reach the aim to fight the infection itself. Next, it's to an overview of some of the details on a report put out recently by Model N. It's the fifth annual State of Revenue report, and to tell us about it and the company is Kyle Forcier, Senior Director of Life Sciences Product Marketing at Model N. We're a, a software company based out of the Bay Area. Our company has been in existence for uh, uh, over 20 years now. You know, we were founded by an entrepreneur named uh, Zach Renat, who started the company from the ground up. Life sciences was not our first, you know, focus area, but we ended up finding a little niche supporting uh, some regulatory requirements, Medicaid and government pricing calculations in pharma, and then expanded into med tech. And then really just sort of, you know, as we started developing these relationships with these uh, pharmaceutical and med tech companies, really just grew our product and started hitting on more and more use cases. And a couple of acquisitions later, uh, here we are. You know, we've got uh, 23 out of the top 25 pharmaceutical companies um, as of like a month ago in terms of revenue, uh, utilized Model N for a lot of their what we call revenue management activities. And we have uh, quite a few, you know, large medical device companies. And, you know, we also have high tech manufacturing customers as well. So semiconductor and high tech manufacturing. So we transformed ourselves uh, from a traditional on-premise company into a SaaS company now. So most of our revenue is SaaS revenue. We, most of our customers have transitioned from on-premise solutions to SaaS and you know, we continue to, to innovate and, uh, you know, work with all the, the largest uh, life sciences companies in the world, trying to help them solve problems, you know, with their post-commercial activity, right? So after the, the drug is launched or the product is launched, that's the, the process that we're supporting. You mentioned 23 out of 25 of, of the top companies. How do you, how do you kind of corner the market like that? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So when we were building up our company going back into the mid 2000s, we took it from, you know, one to the next. And so we sort of chipped away. Fast forward 10, 11 years, we acquired a company that was our competitor at the time that they they were formerly known as iMany and then became Revitas when we prior to us acquiring them. And they kind of had half the pharmaceutical market. So pretty much every deal when we were competing for pharmaceutical companies business, they'd always be there with us. We were very similar in terms of, you know, uh, what our solutions could do. And then once we acquired them, that pretty much sealed the deal in terms of the amount of customers that we had in the space. So that worked out well for us. And uh, yeah, it just sort of grew. You know, we were willing to invest into the niche market that we work in. And, you know, uh, there just aren't a lot of solutions out there that allow pharmaceutical and med tech manufacturers to operate the types of processes in-house. There's a lot of outsourcing that's out there, but in-house software, uh, there's not a lot out there. And so we happen to be, you know, one of the few. I guess we're talking today pretty much about the state of the state of revenue report. I don't know if you could give me some details on the logistical side of it, as opposed to the contents, you know, how long it's been in existence and how you put it together. And Absolutely. Yeah. So the state of revenue report, this is our fifth year. Five years ago, our organization thought we'd like to hear insights from the life sciences and high tech marketplace about trends and uh, you know just different things that these folks care about, right? Uh, we work with a, an agency, a company by the name of Dimensional Research. We basically uh, work with them to craft 
questions that are uh, framed around topics that we think are relevant to the current state. Um, so, for example, you know, a couple of years ago, of course, you know, we had three, four, five questions or topics that were related to COVID, right? Because you know that was the big topic at that period of time. And then lately, it's been more about hey, kind of like what's business like post COVID. We had over 300. It's only uh, responses come from our uh, C-level executives. These are folks that are leaders within their organizations that take the time to go through the survey, provide us you know, information. We do have some questions that are carryover from previous years. And so what's nice is that we can actually start to, to see trends. What's great is we can utilize it as talking points or information to help the marketplace it can inform the market about, you know, what's going on in the life sciences space. And also, you know, helps us think about, hey, look, these are the things that our customers or prospects or just what the market, this is what they care about, right? And maybe these are things that we should be thinking about. And maybe this is how we can frame up our strategy. And perhaps other organizations can utilize it for the same thing as well. And the people that respond to this, are they exclusively your clients? Or is it no, no, no. This is across the board. So, you know, obviously I mentioned, yeah, we've got a large amount of the top pharma manufacturers, but it goes beyond, um, you know, our customer base. Obviously, there's many pharmaceutical and biotech manufacturers out there. Uh, can you give me some of the maybe the key findings from the 2023 version without course, giving the whole thing away. Yeah, yeah, no, would love to. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Just a couple of stats uh, that we found are uh, pretty interesting. So the first topic is around inflation. Based on the responses that we received, and again, this is across all of life sciences and high tech, 84% um, of the respondents believe that inflation is having the single biggest impact on their company's innovation plans. Of course, when we talk about automating processes, go-to-market, commercial processes. We see the, uh, the price increases for everything from, you know, milk and eggs to cars to, you know, everything else. And so these executives are feeling that as well. Two-thirds of the companies that responded are going to focus on improving their existing strategies and tactics to build stability. You know, there's a very uh, extensive bill passed last year called the Inflation Reduction Act that impacts what we call the compliance side of the house, where pharmaceutical manufacturers have to, biotech manufacturers have to think about different types of reporting, perhaps other uh, inflation rebates is what we call them, or, or other calculations that they have to adhere to in order to be compliant with the federal and state uh, governments. And 89% of the, of the pharma, and this is, again, specific to just pharma uh, executives uh, that are concerned that could, these compliance regulations could impact their future revenues. And that's not a surprise. You know, anytime you add additional compliance measures to a company that already has to deal with a lot of compliance measures, it's cause for concern because now there's uncertainty and you have to react. And sometimes when these regulations come out, you don't know how to react. What do I need to do? Am I doing the right thing? Another kind of interesting stat, very related to that 89% stat is 97% of pharma companies are preparing for governmental changes. And this includes financial controls, new healthcare policies, and increasing price transparency mandates. 
Currently, I believe the number is 22, although you never know. Sometimes another state will sneak in there. But 22 states currently have regulations for uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers to produce reporting around their list pricing and other additional information. And I'll leave that very broad. Each state that has a regulation here um, has a little bit of a different you know, tweak to what they require. But the real key here is you know, trying to manage this as a pharmaceutical manufacturer can get quite complex. And I am not surprised that pharmaceutical manufacturers are concerned about this because this 22 states, uh, you know, that number is not going down. And the number of unique reporting requirements is also not going to decrease. It's only going to increase and more and more states are going to jump onto the bandwagon, I think, making it more complex and more difficult to pharma for pharma companies to, uh, to manage. Kind of doubling back to your report again, how does that help companies? I mean, when somebody receives the report or downloads it, how do they use that, I guess? I would say if you work in this industry as a vendor, as a solution provider, as a consultant, as a thought leader, it can provide you with uh, extremely valuable insights to give you an understanding of, hey, what are some of these trends that are going on in the industry? How can I utilize these to help myself, my organization make decisions strategic decisions. And this next interview is about some interesting research in Norway that's been creating quite the buzz. And that's how natural killer cells kill cancer cells with the help of small killer torpedoes or vesicles that the natural killer cells can secrete. To tell us about it and what the discovery may mean for tackling cancer is Marit Ingerdingen from the Institute of Clinical Medicine in Norway. Hi Marit, thanks for being on the podcast. I wonder if you could first tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Yes, so uh, currently I'm a professor in pharmacology at the University of Oslo, but I have been working within immunology and particularly with a killer cell called natural killer cells for the last 20 years since I graduated with my PhD. So I have have kind of had a long and windy academic uh, career road until I, four years ago, succeeded to have a permanent position. And around that time, I think it was around 2017, 18, I had to think about what could be my new niche and my new like research field within these natural killer cells. So that's what brought me to my current research, which concerns these vesicles that we will discuss today. No, but basically I'm an immunologist um, trying to, to utilize the immune system to fight cancer. So could you explain what killer cells are and how they work? Yeah, so they are, I mean, the name can sound a little bit scary, but they are actually our very good helpers in our body. So they are specialized cells that kill cancer cells. And they can also kill cells that have been virus infected. So uh, they are kind of our natural defense against cancer. And this happens because when, a, when, a, when a, one of our healthy cells changes, it can be a mutation or anything, the, the cell will look different. It will look stressed or sick, and it will then be attacked by these natural killer cells. And they're called natural killers because they will just naturally attack them and kill them. But at the same time, they will not kill our normal healthy cells. And there has been a very cool study in, in Japan where they followed 
people's natural killer cells. I think it was for a 10-year period or something. And then I could see that people that had natural killer cells that had very low activity, they were much more prone to developing cancers. And there's also been multiple other reports now out that clearly shows that these cells are super important to protect us. But of course, we do get cancer anyway, so their job isn't perfect. But that's basically what protects us, everyone, from developing cancers all the time. When cancer happens, what is it about the killer cells that doesn't work? I think that there's a constant battle between cancer cells and the immune system. And uh, as the cancer, they can develop maybe in places where the natural killer cells won't so easily find them. And once they reach a critical mass, for example, they will start counterattacks, sort of. For instance, they can uh, secrete factors that will put the immune system to sleep. And they can also make themselves invisible so that the natural killer cells or other cells can't see them anymore. And then they can just grow and quiet. It's thought that some cancer cells escape and then they can form this small colony and then they're good to go and we get cancer. What about killer vesicles? What are those? Since we know that the immune system can really target cancer cells, there is multiple clinical trials around the world now exploiting T-cells and natural killer cells in therapy. And it works super nice for some cancers. And for natural killer cells, it works very nice for cancers of the blood. But the natural killer cells still are not really good at, you know, penetrating a solid tumor in the tissue. They're kind of stuck outside of it. So um, what we thought then was that why don't we utilize the weapons of the natural killer cells and try to use these instead? Because these are so small that they can penetrate this solid mass of tumor. So natural killer cells inside these cells, there are tiny, tiny vesicles. So it's like membrane or fat bound, like it's like small uh, balloons kind of. And these balloons, they're filled with toxic proteins. And these are naturally released by natural killer cells when they kill tumor cells. And also we have found that when these natural killer cells are grown in the laboratory, they will release these small weapons, these vesicles, and we can just harvest them. We can then dump these vesicles in the lab on different tumors, and then the tumors are killed by these vesicles. So the whole idea is kind of to use these small weapons, and we call them, like in popular scientific manner, we call them torpedoes, because we can label them with some uh, targeting domains. And then the idea is that we can uh, have a controlled targeting towards a particular tumor in the body and then blast it from the inside. What's the delivery method? How do you get it into the tumor? We haven't tried it yet, but what we will do is to inject the vesicles into the bloodstream and uh, they will be equipped with a tissue targeting protein, which will make the vesicles extravasate at the correct place in the body. And once there, they will diffuse into the tumor tissue and react with the tumor cells. There has been some uh, studies by uh, other groups showing that uh, these vesicles can really be able to be addressed to different sites in the body and also to penetrate tumors. So we're kind of building on knowledge which is already out there. So basically the natural killer cells can't get into the tumors, but the vesicles can. So just put the natural killer cells into the vesicles. Exactly. So it's like a mini NK cells. And and it's not completely right that the natural killer cells don't get into tumor. It's just that the few that do, they will be put to sleep. 
bad cancer cell. And that's the advantage of the vesicles. They still contain this toxic uh, cargo that can kill cancer cells. But the vesicles will not be uh, put to sleep by the, the cancer because it's not a cell. So it, it's just kind of a container. And the container will not care about what the tumor does. It can be, in that respect, more efficient. And then the natural killer cells are in a position to be able to attack the cancer cells once they get into the tumor. The, the vesicles, yes. So at least we have observed this uh, in our studies in the lab. So we are growing small tumors in, in dishes, and we can see that the vesicles are able to penetrate into the core of these tumor lumps and then initiate tumor cell death from in, within this lump of cancer cells. And what about the the amount that you need? Do you, do you have to figure out how much to add and depending on the size of the tumor? Exactly. So that's, of course, uh, further into the future. when you, If we start clinical trials, that's something we have to do, of course, those response uh, experiments. And we will start these studies in, in mice after summer. But fortunately, the dose that we need is not a limiting factor because it's very easy to produce these vesicles. I think it's important to have multiple different treatment uh, strategies and, and options. And I, I'm not saying that our approach will be, uh, you know, cure all cancer patients, but it's another tool in the toolbox. And I think uh, you maybe have discussed this with others, but I think there's an idea in the field now that you have to treat cancer like a chronic disease and you have to swap between different treatment platforms. Uh, when the cancer start growing again, for example, then you have to go in with something different, which the cancer haven't seen before. And then you get the patient into remission, and then maybe you have to apply a third type of therapy. So you, you have to have a lot of different things, in my opinion. Is this something that you would be able to give on a repeated basis? One of our plan is to make this uh, a very flexible treatment type. So the vesicles themselves will be uh, like the basic uh, product, and then we will be able to uh, engineer these vesicles with different types of targeting proteins, different types of cargo, so that we all the time can personalize the vesicles to meet the needs of particular patients. So that's our, our vision. So not only, so one thing is that we would like to, to uh, target different types of cancers so that we can broadly make like kind of a universal treatment platform, but also uh, when the patients stop responding that we can quickly change these vesicles to meet the different, the new scenario in the patient. That would be right. very cool, I think. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and does it have implications and applications beyond cancer? Potentially. These vesicles in themselves have a huge potential in, in other types of indications and cancer. When it comes to NK cell-derived vesicles, they, of course, could also be utilized to target other types of cells. I mean, you could envision that we could uh, use them to target um, T cells or B cells that are driving autoimmunity, for example. I am not so sure how easy that would be. When it comes to the NK cell-derived vesicles, I think I think maybe cancer is the most likely usage. And in terms of, again, we're, we're thinking long-term and a long, a long way out from here, but in terms of actually producing the vesicles and having a big supply of them, because one of the criticisms, I think, against some cancer therapies is that they, they're just so expensive to produce. Is this something that can be done cheaply and off the shelf? Well, that's what we're uh, going to try to do. So we want to produce these vesicles from a natural killer cell line. 
so this is uh, a cell a cell that can be grown like indefinitely and in huge amounts. It would also mean that it could make a standardized product because it's a monoclonal cell line, so it, it will make the same types of vesicles all the time in, in theory. And we also plan to uh, set up large bioreactors so that we can really upscale the, the production of the vesicles. Fortunately, these vesicles can be stored at uh, low temperatures, minus 80, and then they're stable for a long time. And this is an advantage if, if as you say, we, we, it will allow us to use this as an off-the-shelf therapy and we can take them out, modify them with whatever cargo we want. And in order to get to that vision, to be able to treat cancer, what steps need to be taken to get there? First, I would like to uh, see some convincing data in vivo in mouse models, which we will start up now. And once those studies are done, hopefully we, are, we see some tumor regression. At that point, we will likely try to partner up with some industry and, and uh, start testing the upscaling of the vesicles. What's the time scale for that? We plan to start most of this this year. Of course, if you're talking about time to the first clinical trials, it's hard to say within the next three to five years, maybe. Lots of different factors that can affect all of those things. but And uh, yeah, especially the regulatory paperwork that uh, I can uh, envisage would take some time. Absolutely. And mm. the only wonderful thing about that is that it's always different depending on wherever you go. So mm. that, that's uh, not necessarily easy. But then, as you said, having partners may help with that. Mm. So what's the next step for your group well, we are doing multiple things. So, of course, we uh, we want to start the in vivo studies, but we are also uh, interested in knowing precisely the mechanism for how these vesicles actually kill the tumor cells, because this is actually still not clear. So the effect is there. It's, the cells obviously die, but we don't know how they die. So we don't know, are these vesicles taken up by the cancer cells and thereby killed from the inside? Or do the vesicles just stay on the surface and inject the toxic stuff? So we don't know. And we really need to figure that out. Plenty of work still to do then. Lots of work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> need more uh, money and more people. <laughs> all right. Yeah. How, how big is your team now? Oh, we're not that big. We are uh, right now four people are actively working on the, on the project. What was the reaction like when you put this um, paper out or the news out through the university? Did it generate a lot of interest? People find this very cool. We have also been to some science fairs, so it's really fun to talk about this project, I think. And uh, I mean, that paper where it was published, it's, it's not uh, like a high impact journal, but we got a lot of attention and uh, it really motivates us to do these studies further. And that's it for another podcast. It's now time for me to determine whether I can get home on time or not. So thanks a lot for joining us. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Take care and you'll join us again next time for another Beyond Biotech.